Hey everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Anytime Maybe podcast. Uh, I apologize for uh, not putting out a show last week. I was just a little too busy dealing with other things. And episode three, I thought was pretty good, but I had some technical difficulties with the camera. So uh, unfortunately, there was really no video with that one. So uh, the beard is back this week. You get to see this beautiful face. Um, Going to do something a little different this week. Uh, usually I take a lot of time to kind of prep, you know, what I'm going to say and what I'm going to talk about and stuff like that. And uh, I didn't do any of that this week. Uh, so this week we're just going to kind of shoot from the hip and uh, see how it goes. And uh, if it seems a little bit more natural or something like that, then maybe we'll just kind of continue doing it this way. Um it is a topic, though, that I did want to talk about. Uh, it just so happened to kind of make its reappearance into the uh, into the paper uh, last week or a week and a half ago. Uh, it was an article in the New York Post that had to do with uh, the NYPD purchasing some drones and the use of technology by law enforcement. Uh, I know that's kind of been a, a hot-button topic, uh, especially amongst organizations like the ACLU and you know, other organizations that have their um, concerns, and rightfully so, about, you know, police surveillance um, and, you know, the potential of, uh, you know, for misuse and stuff like that by law enforcement. And anytime I um, read one of these articles, you know, the the argumentative part of me is screaming inside because I just feel like as law enforcement, we don't do a great job of articulating kind of the how and why technology is such a powerful tool when it comes to the the preservation of life, right? And we're not just talking about, you know, preservation of life, just law enforcement officers, but more often than not, that, that preservation of life is really, you know, civilians, uh, whether they're, you know, criminal barricades, perpetrators, um, or non-criminal incidents with people that have, you know, mental illness or maybe are going through some kind of a, a mental crisis where law enforcement gets called to resolve an incident. Um, technology plays a huge role in the the preservation of life. And we're just going to talk about that for a little bit and kind of kind of how that plays out. Um, and then uh, I'm going to answer a question that kind of came in through email, you know, about um, what my recommendations are kind of for, you know, first aid training, first aid kit, stuff like that. Um, I got in that question and, and I figured this would be a kind of a good forum to answer it. Um, so let's start with technology in law enforcement, especially surveillance technology in law enforcement. All right. With law enforcement, especially when we talk about tactical incidents, you know, incidents where a specialized team of law enforcement officers has been kind of called in to mitigate some of high-risk critical incident that maybe expands beyond the capabilities of normal patrol officers. You know, I use the word normal, but, you know, patrol officers that maybe don't have either a level of training or access to certain specialized equipment um, and so they call in a tactical team or a SWAT team, right? And so, uh, you know, a SWAT team shows up and obviously they're going to be in their full kit and gear and have all the toys and gadgets and everything else. And, you know, um, 
there's arguments for whether or not we're escalating situations by introducing, you know, that level of equipment or perceived force or whatever it might be into an incident. Okay. Um, so this, we might get some down some, some rabbit holes here because there's a lot of topics that kind of all intertwine into the same thing. Um, but speaking spe uh, specifically about, you know, technology and its use during incidents like this, I kind of use an analogy. Okay. So in law enforcement, the concepts of distance and cover are it's like currency okay and that currency buys law enforcement time so anytime that we can buy time it gives us more time to process situations and usually the more time that we have to process an incident to process a situation we can usually end up making better decisions. At least we should be making better decisions because there isn't an immediate rush to make a decision, all right? So like the analogy that I use is, you know, where I live in the Hudson Valley in New York, um, dawn, dusk, kind of dangerous time to be out there driving on the highways because of the number of deer that, you know, are, are out there. So if I can see and now we're talking distance, right? So just focusing on distance right now, if I'm driving down the road and a quarter mile away, I see a deer standing in the road, I have some time now to make a good decision on what to do about this, right? And generally speaking, the, the proper decision is I take my foot off the gas, my foot goes on the brake pedal, I start to slow down, you know, and, and maybe if the deer doesn't move, I'm going to need to come to a, you know, a complete stop in the roadway until that deer kind of goes on its way. I can go on my way. No harm, no foul. We both go on about our days and, and you know, we're both happy. Okay. So take that same situation, you know, you're, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden that deer jumps out from the wood line into the roadway and you make a split second kind of very gut decision on what to do. And I think instinctively, what do most people do? You know, they slam on their brakes, they grab the steering wheel, they swerve to avoid the deer. And, uh, you know, from my paramedic days, you know, more often than not, I've seen, you know, cars that swerve to avoid deer and they end up, you know, driving head-on into immovable objects like large trees, okay? Was that the best decision? Probably not. If I had to choose, uh, I'd rather hit the deer than a large immovable object uh, like a tree, okay? Because, you know, obviously when it comes to my own personal well-being and safety, um, usually hitting a deer does not result in, you know, serious physical injuries to people inside of a vehicle. Um, but when you hit a large immovable object like a tree, you know, at highway speed, um, you know, usually there's a higher likelihood of that resulting in some pretty serious injuries, right? But because that incident was so spontaneous and because you were confronted with it right there, all right, you, you are making a very kind of visceral gut 
decision very quickly um, and you really don't have the time that you need to process, okay, what is the best decision? And so you just make a decision, all right? If we roll that into, say, for example, you know, when we talk about training for civilians for active shooters, okay? Um, I'm, I'm sure most people have heard of like the run, hide, fight or avoid, deny, defend, whatever you want to say, methodology for you know, training civilians on how to react or respond to an active shooter event, that decision-making um, is going to be based on a, a couple of factors, right? If I have distance between me and a shooter who enters a room, my first instinct, once I orient myself to what exactly is happening, is, is probably going to be to run. And that's that's probably the best decision. You know, if I have distance between me and that individual, it affords me the opportunity to utilize either the run or hide, you know, parts of that methodology. But if I'm sitting right next to the door and that shooter walks into a room and now because of proximity, distance, I might be forced now to fight. Might be the only option that's really available to me. Uh, at that point, you know, I've taken away any other options because of my proximity to that threat. Okay. Um, it, it's, it's no different with law enforcement. All right. Generally speaking, when we have distance from a problem, the threat level is perceived. And this is obviously going to be based on, you know, is the person armed, unarmed? If they are armed, what type of weapon system are they armed with? Is it a blunt object? Is it a pistol? Is it a rifle? Is it a, you know, crossbow, bow and arrow? Whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, but generally, there's a level of, uh, I, I would say, perceived comfort that comes when, you know, that individual is not right on top of us. And because that individual is not right on top of us, because we have some distance from that individual, we are usually able to slow things down. All right. This is one of the areas that, you know, my former life, um, NYPD, ESU, like that the unit excels at is slowing jobs down. It's, you know, it's kind of one of our mantras. It was one of the things that was really hammered into us. Um, when you go through initial training, especially the the tactics portion of the training, and then the training that deals specifically with, you know, managing people in crisis, okay, the city calls them emotionally disturbed people or EDP. Um, but when you are dealing with people in crisis, anytime the job allows you the ability to slow the job down, uh, we take advantage of that, and that just leads to overall better decision-making because you have the time to kind of, you know, observe what's happening, orient yourself to the information that's kind of coming in, that then you can really make a good informed decision uh, to to act upon, okay? When we talk about cover, okay, it's really kind of the same thing. Um Cover is another form of currency, right, that buys us time, all right? Um, if I'm, you know, swimming out the ocean, um, just free swimming, and, you know, 
I encounter a great white shark, okay, I'm, I'm probably not going to feel too comfortable not having any barrier between me, all right, and that animal, right? And you could say that about, you know, any predator out there, okay, lion, tiger, sharks, bears, oh my, whatever, okay? So just to kind of relate it to the, the same thing here, you know, if I'm in the ocean in a shark cage, and now I encounter that great white shark, uh, you know, I'm going to take some comfort in knowing that I have a piece of equipment that is a barrier between me and that animal, that predator, um, that's providing me with some protection. And now I don't feel as rushed to make a decision. I feel like I can make more of an informed decision uh, if I needed to take some kind of action sort of what the the best course of action is, you know, for that scenario. And so if we equate that over to law enforcement, uh, this is where when we start talking about specialized equipment, heavier vests, helmets, armored vehicles, technology, right? So now technology obviously is not covered. We're going to get to that because that's really what I want to focus on today. But like I said, we were going to get down some rabbit holes here. Um, cover buys me time because if I have some form of protection, all right, I don't feel as rushed to have to make a decision. And we've seen this play out uh, time and time again. Um, I've seen it play out, you know, professionally, and then we see it uh, quite often on the news and stuff like that, um, where, you know, if I have an individual that's firing a gun and I'm in an armored vehicle, and those bullets are just bouncing off the vehicle, um, that might be a scenario, might be, you know, there's a lot of variables here, but that might be a scenario that might lend me to be able to continue to attempt negotiations if it's warranted, all right? Um, why? Because I have this armored vehicle that's providing me with protection, that protection buys me time, that time allows me to process information and just make better decisions overall, okay? Um, realistically, the the goal of any tactical team, SWAT team, tactical team, whatever, um, realistically is is legitimately the, the preservation of life, you know, at least it should be. But um, uh, once again, I know speaking from my former life, you know, preservation of life was something that we really excelled at because for the amount and volume of work that we had, um, we really had very few deadly use of force incidents. Um, they were very, very rare, you know, and fortunately when they did happen, you know, they were quite often justified. Um, so, you know, why is that? And the use of technology uh, plays such a vital key role in that. Um, so the majority of the work that we were doing was in apartments. You know, New York City obviously is very diverse in terms of real estate, and you have, you know, multi-dwelling apartment buildings, private houses, commercial structures, you know, so on and so forth. Um, the majority of our work being in apartments, uh, you know, the biggest thing that we had going for us in terms of currency was being able to keep someone isolated and contained inside their apartment using the door, 
right, as a physical barrier, the apartment door is a physical barrier between us and them, deploying some other specialized equipment as well to add to that that layer of protection. But as long as we had control of a door and had that physical barrier between us and that individual, that afforded us both distance and cover to buy us time to really, you know, observe what was happening, orient ourselves to the information coming in, so this way we can make good uh, decisions, which then we acted on. And, you know, when it was an incident where there was no third person's life that was imminently in danger, and it was just a sole occupant, let's say, of an apartment or a house or something like that, there really wasn't the need to rush to making decisions in a lot of these cases. Now, once again, there's variables that happen um, that that might necessitate that when it's a sole occupant inside of a house, but just speaking kind of very generically right now. So when you have someone who is isolated and contained inside their house, there's no third party, it's not a hostage situation, generally speaking, law enforcement is going to look to mitigate as much risk as possible, okay? And it's it's initially, it, it, it is risk to the law enforcement officers themselves, because if we look at something called safety priorities, that kind of prioritizes, you know, uh, people from top to bottom, not in terms of whose life is most valuable, but more so who is in most control over the decisions that is happening in that incident. And the less control that you have, the higher that you are on that list, okay? Ultimately, with any situation, whether it is a hostage situation or it is, you know, a sole barricaded subject, somebody that's, you know, holed up inside of a location and they're refusing to surrender to law enforcement, that individual has the most control the entire time because they can either choose to take harmful action towards themselves or somebody else or law enforcement at any moment, or they can make the decision to peacefully and voluntarily surrender to law enforcement. We can try to coerce them into that surrender, but at the end of the day, it's, it's that individual that's making that decision. And so they ultimately have the most control throughout the entire incident. Now, there's things that we can do, that law enforcement can do to mitigate risk, to attempt to coerce individuals um, into that peaceful, voluntary surrender. That's always, you know, that's really always the ultimate goal. That's how we'd like to see all of these incidents end, all right, uh, is with a peaceful, voluntary surrender. But that's just not always possible, Okay. And, and typically that's not possible because at the end of the day, it's the individual who we are there for that ultimately is making the decision for law enforcement and what they need to do in order to end that situation peacefully. All right. So getting back to the, the technology part, all right, if I have an individual inside of um, an apartment and we have legal authority to be there, okay, we've, you know, either obtained an arrest warrant or a search warrant, or, you know, there's one of the constitutional exemptions for, 
you know, when we start talking about Fourth Amendment stuff in case law, and we're going to get into that in a, in a minute here. Um, but we have constitutional authority to be there. Okay, there's no question about it. We have every legal authority to be there. We have legal authority to be carrying on what we're doing. Um, the best thing that we can do is engage that individual in, in conversation, in negotiations, because, you know, by doing so, that's how we start working towards a resolution. All right. You know, it's like having a fight with your spouse. Like you're not going to come to any resolution if there's no conversation. Right. So we can start working towards resolution of an incident. Peaceful resolution is ultimately, you know, ultimately what we would like, but we can start working towards that resolution through negotiations, okay? But negotiations is really, it's only one part of it, okay? And if I, you know, if we have an individual who is either not willing to negotiate, okay, they're not talking to us, um, or they are just really holed up inside of their apartment, uh, now we need some more information because ultimately, you know, uh, one of three things or maybe four things is going to happen here, Right. Either we are going to work towards that peaceful surrender and get that person to voluntarily come out to us. Um, we can make the decision ultimately to forcibly take that individual into custody by entering their house or apartment um, and then utilizing the tools that we have in order to take people into custody. That's the ultimate goal is to take them into custody. Uh, but obviously, once we make that decision to forcibly enter a, lo a location to take someone into custody, there's a lot of things that can happen, okay? That just really changes the, the dynamics in terms of uh, we, we lose the ability not fully, but we lose the ability to an extent to control the situation. Okay. And now we are closing distance with that individual. Um, we're entering maybe unknown terrain that we also have to kind of process uh, and move across. And, and that just adds more variables into the complexity of the whole thing. Right. Um, and I'm losing that physical barrier of that door between me and that individual. Right. So there's a lot of things that change once you make the decision to cross that threshold to go and now affect that arrest or take that individual into custody, you know, for whatever the reason is. All right. Um, or we can just pack up and, you know, walk away. And I know that's been a, a conversation as of late. And there's agencies like, you know, the city of Los Angeles that's doing a lot more with, you know, walking away from non-criminal barricades, which I uh, personally am a, a big advocate of. Um, I don't think that every individual who's in, you know, who's a person in crisis necessarily benefits from having law enforcement there every single time. Um, that being said, though, there's there's definitely a fine line between when it is appropriate for law enforcement to be introduced and not walk away. Um, and when it is appropriate for law enforcement to just, just pack up and walk away. And there's, you know, been some very tragic stories, um, you know, out there of, you know, law enforcement walking away from an incident and then something bad happens. And so you, it, it's just one of those decision-making things that is not easy, but I'm not going to get too far down that rabbit hole. Cause that's a whole other conversation for another show. Um, so, so those are kind of our options at this point. Okay. And I know one of the things that, uh, we always 
push for before we made that decision to cross that threshold is we wanted to mitigate as much risk to us and to the individual as possible um, before we did that. And we did that through, you know, information and intelligence gathering. Okay. Um, and that's where technology really comes in. You know, if, if I have an individual who is not, especially if they're not communicating with me, all right. Um, I want to know, is that person even still alive, you know, um, or, or do we need to get in there sooner rather than later to now attempt to provide life-saving medical care, all right? Uh, I'm not going to know that if I don't get eyes on the person, okay? I need to know, is there anyone else in there that maybe I'm not aware of that might be in danger? You know, is this person a, a sole occupant inside of that apartment or that house, or is there somebody else in there? Because now that changes things, right? Now we've gone from, you know, the sole occupant uh, barricade where it's just the one individual that we're dealing with to now a hostage situation. And that that changes things greatly because now that hostage has the, the least amount of control over anyone in there uh, at all. And so they end up getting placed, you know, at the top of the ladder. And once something transitions from a sole occupant barricade to a hostage situation, it changes the dynamics of the incident, um, where now, you know, that person is the number one consideration uh, in this entire thing. It's no longer about, you know, the safety of law enforcement. It's no longer about, you know, the the individual, the hostage taker. Everything becomes about the the hostage themselves. So that, that changes the dynamic. And the only way that we're going to know that is to be able to get eyes, you know, into these locations. Okay. Um, before I make the decision to cross that threshold and to go in there to take an individual into custody, you know, I want to know, are they armed? Because once again, that might change the dynamic. All right. Uh, we see this a lot with, you know, when we respond to people who are in crisis, um, where because of the factors involved and the outward threats of violence uh, or actions of the individual, if we really determine that this person is a legitimate danger to either themselves or a third party, um, and and it, it might necessitate us trying to resolve this inf incident peacefully than just packing up and, and walking away. Um, and before we cross that threshold, you know, we want to know, is this person armed? Because if they are, that's, that's probably going to, you know, we're probably going to pump the brakes um, and not force an encounter. The last thing that we want to do, you know, is is force an encounter with an individual, especially an individual who, you know, realistically, we were called there to to help. Okay, um, and and this happens every other day in New York City, and uh, you know, so much of it goes unreported um, because obviously you can't report on every single you know incident that happens. But I don't think people realize the number of incidents that are the frequency at which these things are peacefully resolved individuals that are armed with firearms knives you know homemade flamethrowers like all sorts of anything and everything you can think of um the work that goes into making every attempt to resolve these incidents using as little force as necessary with the really the ultimate goal always being a peaceful voluntary surrender. So if I have an individual who 
is in crisis and they're in an apartment by themselves and because of their current emotional or mental state, you know, they're waving around a knife inside an apartment, there's there's no rush for us to go in there. And we're we're probably not going to because doing so and, you know, once again removing that that physical the you know, physical barriers and then closing distance. Um I don't have the you know, luxury of time anymore. And so now I need to make more critical decisions and maybe split second decisions. Okay. So the only way that we are going to be able to get that information a lot of times is through the use of technology. Um, unless the person, unless I can physically see them through a hole in the door where I can see their hands, I can, you know, be assured that they don't have a weapon or close access to, um, and I take their word for it that they're in there alone, uh, and that there isn't a person, another person there that needs either rescue or medical help or whatever it might be. You know, I'm putting a lot of faith in that person to be honest with me uh, in that moment about you know what currently is happening inside of that location, um, and so. Uh, you know, I don't know about you. I usually don't put a lot of faith that people are always being honest and truthful with me. Um, I'd rather kind of see for myself and get that information firsthand. And so how do we get that? Well, we get that through technology, cameras, okay? Whether it's drones, whether it's, you know, throw cameras and pole cameras and all sorts of other cameras um, that law enforcement has access to. You know, getting that information uh, is really important just to help us be able to make better decisions to ensure uh, an outcome where nobody gets hurt. That's, once again, that that's the best outcome that we can ask for. Obviously, that doesn't always happen, but the more information that we can get, we are able to take certain steps to mitigate as much risk as possible to us and the individual. And those steps could be simply holding off and continuing negotiations, or it could be some other type of, you know, uh, activities that we would take or, you know, injections with equipment or, or something like that um, to help mitigate some of that risk also. So I understand the the concerns that are out there about, you know, law enforcement's use of technology. And that's why I think it's important for agencies that utilize technology um, to ensure that their, you know, their officers really understand um, that little thing called the Fourth Amendment um, and, and some of the constitutional, like, case law that's out there um, regarding, you know, unlawful search and seizure, okay? A, a lot of this is based on, like, objective reasonableness, and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I got later on um, in my career when I went up to the apprehension team and we were executing, you know, a lot of search warrants. And, you know, a lot of these questions started coming up about um, the reasonableness or the legality of entries. And one of the issues was that a lot of police officers were just not very good at articulating based on constitutional law and case law uh, what authority that they were using outside of a judge signing a document that answers all the questions for you, right? Once you get an arrest warrant or a search warrant, you know, arrest warrant, there's obviously limitations 
on where that arrest warrant can be um, executed in terms of forcible entry. Uh, but with a search warrant for a specific targeted location that's, you know, on the warrant, uh, that Fourth Amendment kind of constitutional stuff is being answered for you. So it makes things a lot easier. Uh, it's the spontaneous incidents where uh, maybe it falls into, you know, one of these exemption categories, but you're going to have to be able to articulate that. All right. And you're going to have to be able to explain, you know, why that is. Um, you, you know, like, I don't think that a lot of thought goes into when we start talking about civilian review boards and stuff like that, that sometimes these constitutional cases take years to work themselves out through appellate and state supreme and even eventually maybe the Supreme Court. Um, in terms of the constitutionality of an entry. And a lot of this, once again, is based on, you know, what an objectively reasonable officer would do, you know, at that moment in time. And you can't use 2020 hindsight to kind of second guess their decision making, right? But as a as a as law enforcement, we need to do a better job of, you know, especially law enforcement officers, you know, on, on tactical teams and stuff like that, that we're being called to the scene of these things kind of afterwards. And we're, maybe we're getting information from patrol cops who were there first and, and whatever else. Like we have a duty as well to do, you know, our due diligence to make sure that anything that we do, that's going to be kind of an extension of privacy concerns and things like that. When we start talking about technology that we're doing it within the letter of the law, you know, um, because that same fourth amendment, you know, that, protects us, protects, you know, the public as well. So I think, you know, having good training programs uh, that go into constitutional law, case law, the legality of the utilization of technology to make sure that we're not overreaching um, or that we're not doing things that are unconstitutional, I think is extremely important. Okay. Uh, along with that, I think being uh, transparent in the use of technology, how it's used. And, and most importantly, once again, this is the part that always I want to scream when I, you know, see news stories about this is at the end of the day, technology is responsible for saving lives. I mean, probably more than any other piece of equipment that um, I think that I deployed during my time because, you know, we relied heavily on technology to give us the information that we needed in order to make good informed decisions. And when you have the information, it allows you to make a good informed decision that has, you know, everyone's best interest in mind. We're looking to achieve a goal to resolve an incident peacefully. And the only way that we can do that is if we have the information that we need in order to make the decisions to reach that objective or that goal, all right? So I think, you know, being transparent in its use and really emphasizing that that is the primary purpose, at least for tactical teams. I know that technology is being used for uh, for other things as well. And, and honestly, that's not my background to speak about, you know, surveillance and, and you know, other aspects of, of utilizing technology. So I'm not even going to start to venture into that. Uh, I'm just talking more about the use of technology specifically by tactical teams, typically to resolve, you know, high risk, critical kind of tactical incidents, um, since that's, you know, my background. Uh, so, um, 
I think, you know, between good training, being transparent, having established standard operating procedures that everyone kind of works from that standardizes the de the deployment of technology to make sure that's within, you know, department uh, guidelines. You know, we were very fortunate with the NYPD that, you know, we had a full legal bureau. And um, for any NYPD cops out there listening, they are an underutilized resource, like one that I, it wasn't until I went into ESU and once again, specifically until later on in my career when I was up at the apprehension team, that I started relying on the legal bureau uh, a lot. Uh, I would, you know, uh, call them quite often with questions about, you know, search warrants that were issued that maybe had kind of ambiguous um, restrictions in them and, and stuff like that. And so they're an excellent resource for you. You know, once again, that's one of the benefits um, of working for a larger agency like the NYPD where you have access to, you know, a full legal bureau that this is all they do is a, they're basically your advisors, you know, when you have questions about legal issues, uh, maybe that come up. And, and especially when you start talking about the the legality of, hey, this is what we have and this is what we're looking to do. We want to get your insight on it from a legal perspective because they're going to be the most up-to-date, you know, case law and stuff like that is, is I find it interesting to read, um, but it's, it's always changing, you know, and unless you have access to the tools that they do to kind of see where the case law is, um, you know, at that day, because once again, you know, it's always changing they're going to be able to provide you kind of with the, with the best advice. So an excellent resource, once again, completely underutilized um, and, and probably someone that, you know, you should uh, consider when you, when you get into these incidents where, you know, maybe there's questions of constitutional authority, you know, with our presence at an incident and, and what we need to do to ensure that we're working within the letter of the law. So anyway, I digress, uh, told you rabbit holes, but um so, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it when it comes to technology. Um, I think it's a, a super important part, I think, to restrict law enforcement and using technology um, just for the sake of restriction without any basis. I don't think it's helpful. I think that that's actually going to uh, do a lot more harm than it does good. Uh, once again, just speaking from my own personal perspective and experience, Technology has resulted in more lives saved than than probably anything else, because once again, and I can't kind of reiterate this enough, but technology gave us the information that we needed to make good, informed decisions. Um, so this way we could work towards the resolution of an incident um, with with no one getting hurt. You know, at the end of the day, once again, our goal is always a peaceful, voluntary surrender. Um, and it's, it's up to the individual, you know, that mm, this is the reason that we're there to, you know, to kind of foster that. All right. But getting information, um, just helps us achieve that, that goal. That's the end goal. All right. Uh, so moving on, uh, got an email asking about, you know, Hey, medical equipment, first aid kits, uh, stuff like that. Like, what are your suggestions, recommendations? Uh, and I tend to kind of just give very, you know, uh, straight answers with this stuff. Uh, if you're going to buy like a first aid kit from, you know, Rite Aid, CVS, uh, whatever, you know, that has a bunch of, you know, band-aids in it and alcohol pads and some aspirin, like, yep, that that's great for, you know, everyday 
you know, cuts, scrapes, everything else. Uh, but in terms of depending on that first aid kit as a resource for you in the event of a life-threatening incident, no, it's, it's not worth the plastic box that it came in, to be honest with you. So, um, I basically say that there are three life-threatening incidents that as a layperson, your actions prior to the arrival of professional first responders can make like a huge difference, right? So sudden cardiac arrest, choking, and uncontrolled external bleeding, right? Um, the reality is like with diabetics and seizures and heart attacks and strokes and everything else, there's not much that you can really do other than recognition and calling 911 and providing supportive care, like monitoring airway, breathing, circulation. Um, and then it's just kind of a waiting game for, you know, first responders to get there and then take over care. Um, and even with some of that stuff, um, you know, there's there's limitations on what we can do pre-hospitally. Some of the stuff we can kind of correct right there, like, you know, diabetic hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, like we can correct that in the field very easily. But um, something like a stroke, you know, realistically, there's not much in the field that we're going to do for that other than, once again, recognition and getting to definitive care. So I say those three things because they... There's things that you can do at a layperson level that are going to have a massive impact on survivability, okay? Cardiac arrest, um, sudden cardiac arrest talked about in episode two uh, when we talked about young athletes. The reality is that sudden cardiac arrest kills over 350,000 uh, Americans every year. It's an abnormal, uh, it's usually secondary to an abnormal heart rhythm um, that is spontaneous and comes without warning and results in your heart stop beating, right? And your heart stops beating, blood and oxygen no longer get to your brain, you stop breathing, and after four to six minutes, you get cellular death at the brain level. Um, that's irreversible, right? So CPR training, okay? Get trained in CPR. It's, you know, two hours out of your day um, to really learn a life-saving, you know, life-saving skill and the importance of it, all right? Um, CPR is great. Uh, because you are facilitating the flow of oxygenated blood to the heart and the brain muscle. And you're keeping those cells and that muscle alive, um, hopefully long enough for professional help to get there and then take over um, care at that point. So if we don't do anything, you know, once again, four to six minutes, uh, irreversible cellular death and, you know, chances of survivability drop kind of dramatically uh, from that point. In addition to CPR, uh, automated external defibrillators, access to, all right? Um, a defibrillator is kind of the definitive treatment. So CPR in itself, very rarely does CPR in itself result in resuscitation. I know it's cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, but just speaking from, you know, 24 years of EMS experience, um, CPR in itself very rarely results in true resuscitation. It's an important part of the whole step because I need to keep the heart and the brain oxygenated uh, in order for other treatments that we're going to do, such as defibrillation, such as cardiac medications and so on and so forth, for that stuff to really have the most effectiveness. So it's absolutely an important step in the whole thing. But when we talk about sudden abnormal heart rhythms, usually we're talking about ventricular fibrillation. 
Um, and the definitive treatment for that is defibrillation. So access to an AED. Okay. Um, Nowadays, I mean, they, you know, there are AED manufacturers now that even make AEDs, you know, for your home. Okay. They say that over, I think it's 65% of sudden cardiac arrest uh, incidents where individuals die, like it occur, you know, they occur at home. Um, so there, there is a push for AEDs in the home to, you know, become just as commonplace as your fire extinguisher. Now, I always look at things look at things through like a dollar and a cents uh, sort of thing as well. And some stuff is, you know, we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about the bleeding control stuff. Um, you know, is is the money that you're investing, you know, worth it for, you know, the chance, the, the slim chance that this might happen, you know, obviously in a country of 300 million people, you know, 350,000 people dying from it seems like a very small number, but you know, if it's your family member or a friend or something like that, then obviously it's affecting you personally. Um, you know, the, the most home AEDs, okay. Or, or kind of civilian model AEDs, you know, they're going to retail around the $1,400 mark. Um, and the nice thing about them is that, you know, they, they generally come with, I know like the Phillips brand AED, you know, the, their heart start home AEDs, uh, comes with like an eight year, Warranty. Um, if you're here in New York State, New York State issues a $500 tax credit as well. You know, towards the purchase of an AED um, that you can write off on your taxes. Uh, so you know, I don't know. Is is fourteen hundred? You know, minus five, nine hundred dollars. You know, uh, worth having a piece of equipment in your home um, for when you need it. Uh, I, I like to use you know the old saying. You know, better to have and not need than to need and not have. So. Um, I went out and bought one, you know, honestly, uh, just because, uh, number one, I'm not going to sit here and advocate for this stuff and be a hypocrite, but also, you know, when you start thinking about it, um, it just, honestly, it just makes sense, you know? So, uh, I would say definitely at minimum CPR training, uh, once again, you know, when you talk about AED training, the training is great, but if you don't have access to the equipment, you know, the training without the equipment is, is kind of useless. Um, so being able to access that equipment, uh, is, is just as important. Uh, so that covers the sudden cardiac arrest, uh, choking, right? So once again, you're cutting off air supply and uh, cutting off air supply means no oxygen, no oxygen means four to six minutes, brain, heart, all that other good stuff that we just talked about. So, uh, you know, you're going to learn how to relieve a foreign body airway obstruction in a CPR class, um, which is typically effective. Uh, but there are other devices out there as well. Um, you know, devices like the life vac or the D choker. Um, I have more familiarity with the life vac, uh, but, uh, you know, my opinion on it is that it's another tool in the toolbox. Um, you know, the life vac retails around $70. Uh, once again, you know, in terms of a long-term investment, the good thing with it is that, uh, Usually the only thing that has to be replaced on it are the masks, um, which cost, you know, $6 maybe every three years or so. Um, they're good for both infants and children. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about pretty small investment for something that, you know, has a, has a you know, if you look at their website, they, there's some good stuff on there. Like it's a very proven track record. I think they're up to over, you know, 1,200 reported lives saved. And the nice thing about LifeVac is if you use it to save a life, you fill out a form send it into them and they send you a replacement for free. So, you know, it's not even uh, something where if you use it, you know, you're out 70 bucks and, you know, that should be the least of your 
you know, thoughts at that point. But, um, you know, but once again, the investment for what it can be used for and for what it's designed for and the fact that it's not something that, you know, has to be replaced every six months where it's an ongoing investment, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty worthwhile if you ask me. Um, and then moving on to massive, you know, or life-threatening uncontrolled external bleeding. This was the big, you know, stop the bleed push that started back in, I think it was like 2015 or so. Um, yeah, when I, when I first started as a paramedic, um, tourniquets were a no-no. Uh, you know, we were never trained on them, never had them. Um, there was, you know, always the thoughts that, oh, if I use a tourniquet, you know, it's going to mean that the person's going to, you know, lose their arm, lose their leg. And, uh, you know, through war, okay, a lot of advances have been made in, you know, the pre-hospital management of trauma and all of these fallacies that we had about tourniquets uh, were completely disproven through, you know, years and years and years of medical studies to show their effectiveness and um, the limitations on like adverse side effects that we all thought were going to happen. And so now tourniquets are like a mainstay, um, you know, police officers, paramedics, EMTs, civilians, like everyone and anyone now um, has access to the training and to the equipment in order to be able to really make a big difference in survivability because you know, if you sever a major vessel, artery or vein, um, and that blood is ending up on the floor, well, once again, what is that blood carrying? It's carrying oxygen, okay, amongst other things, you know, clotting factors, oxygen, you know, dealing with thermoregulation and delivering nutrients and removing waste and all this other stuff. And if it's on the floor and not in the pipes in your body, um, it's not doing your body much good there, okay? And your your body needs to maintain a certain blood pressure in order to push all this stuff through cellular barriers uh, and stuff like that. And so as I lose blood volume, I'm losing clotting factors, I'm losing platelets, I'm losing, you know, red blood cells that are carrying oxygen, and I'm losing that pressure within my vessels. And then I can't, you know, I end up with hypoperfusion and I can't push this stuff across cellular barriers and everything else. And so um, stopping the bleeding is a pretty important thing then to keep all that red stuff in the body okay uh and when we talk about massive external bleeding you know from extremities arms and legs the tourniquets really direct pressure is always the you know the initial uh management for that okay and when we talk about that we're talking about hard direct pressure um something i get into like in a lot of my stop the bleed classes is you know yep you're, you're probably gonna hurt the person but you're doing what you need to do to save their life so um, you know, it all starts with direct pressure always to at least stem the flow of blood or slow it down long enough to get access to a tourniquet and apply it. Uh, tourniquets vary in price anywhere from, you know, cat tourniquet is a pretty common one that's out there by North American Rescue. Uh, they retail around 30 bucks, uh, all the way up into the forties, you know, for some of the other branded tourniquets. Um, you know, my, my recommendation with tourniquets is don't go on Amazon and get the, you know, $18.99 for two deal because you're getting two knockoffs um, that have been proven time and time again to fail once they've been put under any kind of significant stress. Um, and when you apply a tourniquet, you know, you're putting significant stress on the cloth, on the, if it's a tourniquet with a windlass, a bar on it that you twist, you're putting significant stress on that. And that is not something that you want to fail. So a tourniquet is another one of those items where, you know, you're going to get a lot for your investment. Uh, if you take care of it, keep it out of the sun, 
uh, and stuff like that, you know, and don't use, uh, I think there's only one tourniquet out there on the market that's kind of advertised that the tourniquet that you train with is the one that you can use for your life. But generally like, like, like the cat and the soft tea and um, tourniquets like that, you know, the manufacturers recommend not using your, uh, you know, your, your everyday carry tourniquet or, or the tourniquet in your medical kit used for training to have a tourniquet specific for training because of the stress you're going to put on it. So as long as, you know, what I'm getting to here, the point I'm getting at is as long as you take care of it, that $30 investment is going to last you years. Okay. Um, if you don't ever have to use it. So, you know, you're going to get a good return on your investment in terms of time. Okay. Uh, when we talk about massive external bleeding from junctional areas. So these are parts of the body that kind of junction with your torso, right? So we're typically talking about the pelvis up in the shoulders, you know, the sides of the neck. Um, these areas that are not amendable to tourniquet use, uh, the, the definitive treatment for that is wound packing, meaning that I'm going to take actual gauze dressing um, and I'm going to kind of fill up that void or that cavity, that space with dressing with the the goal of putting pressure on that vessel that might be in, you know, could be deeper in that area. It could be superficial, but I want to put pressure on that area, all right, um, in order to stem the flow of blood and start to facilitate the formation of clots, all right? And there's dressings out there called hemostatics, all right? So dressings like Quick Clot uh, or Celox or Hemcon or, you know, there's I think those are kind of XStat might be another one. Um, but there are dressings out there that are specifically designed for this purpose. And they generally contain some type of agent in them that helps to, you know, promote the formation of blood clots. Okay. Um, definitely work a lot better than your standard, you know, gauze without any kind of hemostatic agent that is uh, combined or embedded with it. Um, you know, the downside to these agents is unlike, you know, a tourniquet, these things have an expiration date and a shelf life, you know, so a pack of quick clot, you know, you're going to spend $40, $45, I guess, depending on where you get it on. Um, and, you know, if you never need to use it and the thing expires in a couple of years, um, you know, now you need to go out and buy another one. And it's, you know, you also have to track that, you know, like, uh, you, you don't want 10 years to go by and all of a sudden you need it and the thing expired five years ago and I don't know, maybe that affects its, you know, effectiveness. Um, so when you start talking about stuff like that, there's just a little bit more work that goes into it, you know, uh, in terms of keeping up with expiration dates, realizing that it doesn't need to be replaced. So you're not getting the same return on your investment uh, from a monetary standpoint, you know, because you're going to have to replace it. Uh, and it is costly, especially if, you know, you're not just buying one, you're buying one for your home, one for your car, you know, one for your office at work, whatever it might be like, yes, it, it adds up. Okay. But, you know, I could sit here, I'm not a salesman by any means. So I'm not gonna sit here and say, you know, like, oh, what cost can you put on, you know, a person's life or your own and blah, blah, blah. Like you have to make that decision for yourself. Okay. So, you know, just to kind of wrap things up at a bare minimum, what do I recommend? you know, for a home or car or whatever, you know, preparedness, first aid, medical kit, CPR mask, home AED, if you can afford one, the training that goes along with those two things, all right, a life vac or other type of anti, you know, or, or choking relief device just to have as another tool in the toolbox in case, you know, the conventional methods of Heimlich maneuver don't work. 
Um, you know, at least you have something else that you can utilize uh, before, you know, professional help gets there. All right. And then uh, tourniquets, you know, at minimum tourniquets and then some type of Z-fold gauze or hemostatic gauze, um, you know, to manage serious external bleeding that's coming from either an extremity or junctional area. Um, everything here that we're talking is time sensitive, right? You stop breathing, your heart stops beating, you got four to six minutes before you start getting irreversible cellular death in the heart and the brain. Okay, it kind of makes it hard or complicates recovery if we do resuscitate you. All right. And then when we talk about massive external bleeding, you know, an individual can literally bleed to death in, in less than three minutes. Okay. Um, there's, you know, a lot of these gore videos that go out on the internet. And one of the things that I always pay attention to with these videos of people that sustain injuries where they have immediate arterial bleeding is how long it takes before they collapse into unconsciousness. And in some of these videos, it happens within, you know, 20 seconds, if that, um, and, you know, if that individual's by themselves and they were putting pressure on that wound, well, once they become unconscious, they're no longer doing that. All right. Now that wound is free to, you know, bleed freely. Um, and that's going to result in, in demise, you know, trauma, you know, we talk about trauma amongst, you know, an 18 year old kid in the military who's in his best, you know, best shape of his life. Um, body's a little bit more resilient than, you know, the majority of the general population that once you start reaching these stages of, you know, decompensated and irreversible shock. Um, yep, maybe we get you to the hospital alive, but, you know, there's a, a cascade that happens after that um, that can result in your death from an organ failure and and other things, you know, days or, or weeks later. Uh, so we want to prevent all, you know, we want to prevent people from getting even to that point, And we do that by controlling this stuff. So four to six minutes, brain and, you know, heart cellular death three minutes or less to bleed to death. The average response time for an ambulance in the United States, 10 minutes. All right. Generally it's in the seven to nine minute range for, you know, um, urban areas. Okay. Uh, and then it's longer, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. Once you start getting more rural, I talked about this in episode two, I think it was, um, where, you know, response times that are reported are not always accurate and the reason why not. So, because those are so time sensitive and because of, you know, the, the response time for medical help in the United States averages, uh, that those would be my, my, my top three recommendations. All right. So uh, I appreciate the question though. Keep them coming. Gives me something to talk about and kind of ramble on here. Uh, so other than that, everyone stay safe. Uh, hope everyone's well and we'll see you next time. Thanks.